I get very frustrated with this, what I call neomania, which is the obsession with new things just because they're new. I feel kind of proud that I've been using the same kind of three basic productivity tools for 10 years. I mean, the greatest productivity hack I've ever found is simply picking those three tools and using them for a decade. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Selling with Love podcast. And we're going to talk about something that's a little to the side of our usual focus on sales, but something I'm equally passionate about. For those who don't know, I actually taught some productivity courses on the Mindvalley platform, and I've taken some of the best insights from leaders around the world when it comes to teaching ways to be more productive, to make a bigger impact while managing your time, your stress, and any kind of overwhelm and anxiety that would come in the role for somebody managing multiple things and doing some big projects in the process. And one of the leaders in actually developing what has been coined as a second brain is Tiago Forte. He is a man that has built a community and has taught thousands, tens of thousands of people on how to own how your digital life works, how to organize things, knowing that there's so many different things that are happening everywhere. From your phone, you capture some notes. We have notepads, post-it notes. We have these online organized and then suddenly we start, we give up on them, and it creates this sort of digital chaos. And this man has really put together a method that allows you to put things together that make sense, are usable, and actually pay dividends over the long term. And I'm super excited to bring him back to the show because he's just about to launch his new book, which is The Para Method, How to Simplify, Organize, and Master Your Digital Life. We'll dig into this, how it applies for entrepreneurs, salespeople, and everyday people. And I'm so excited to have Tiago here joining us today. Tiago, welcome back. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Jason. Well, I'm happy to have you back. And before I dig into it, I know there's two projects that you're working on. You have the book that's coming out or has just come out. You also have a newborn in your life and that's been keeping you a busy bee. And so I was going to ask, you know, with all these projects happening around you, you still have a good mastery of your time, don't you? I try. I try. Those are definitely two of the most formidable, uh, complex projects I've ever undertaken. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a whirlwind of a year, but I'm I'm happy. I'm good. Well, let's dive right into it because a lot of times when we think about methodologies, techniques that allow you to be more organized, there often comes this kind of debt to pay at the beginning. It seems like it's a lot of work to do. And so even if I look at something like the para method, I would assume that it requires a lot of work to kind of look at what's going on fix it and apply it. And so for most people who feel like they're too busy, or it seems like even more work to get a process in place like what you teach, how do you usually respond when it feels like it's too much work to even get organized? Yeah, what I would point to is I think there's a mindset shift, there's always a mindset shift to undergo, right? Which is actually the mindset shift that I think a lot of people need to go through, especially a lot of Americans, a lot of Western people, a lot of people in developed countries, I think we have this built-in bias that order is better, that more order is inherently superior, which is just not true. I'm reading a book right now called A Perfect Mess. The whole book is just examples and evidence and proof that in many, not just a few situations, many, most situations, too much order can be just as detrimental and just as bad as too little. 
And so instead of thinking, okay, more order is better, being organized is always preferable, always a good idea, you should always invest more time in being organized, I almost think of organization as like a special substance. It's like a magical elixir that I have this tiny little vial of it. And there are just these very few parts of my life, just a handful where I can sort of open up the elixir and add a little bit of order to make it better. But that there's actually not many parts of my life like that. And even for those parts, it's not a lot of organization that's needed, just a little bit, right? So we can get into what some of those areas are, but I would encourage people to think of order and chaos as just two sides to the coin, kind of like yin and yang. And it's really about the balance between those two things, not assuming that one is always better than the other. That's very interesting. And I can't help but make a parallel to, you know, a lot of the themes that would come up from works of Jordan Peterson, who speaks a lot about order and chaos when it comes to psychology, the concept like growing up, taking on responsibility, and I think even having it associated quite strongly to the masculine trait of order and the feminine trait of chaos, but also parallel towards creation. Do you find the concepts of organizing your digital life or even just your projects and your way of operating and working follows around those same guidelines? Yeah, and I think they definitely do. And where this comes from for me is the fact that my dad is American and my mom is Brazilian. And so when I say American, you know, I know what the American, there's a kind of attitude and worldview, which is related to the attitude of the whole kind of Western world. But then there's a Brazilian lens. There's a Brazilian perspective and way of being. And I kind of see the world through that lens as well. And the Brazilian mode, the Brazilian lens is far more fluid. You know, I can always contrast the American way of seeing things and the Brazilian way of seeing things. The American way will be much more rigid, much more engineered and structured and kind of formulaic, systematic, whereas the Brazilian, and to be clear, there's many situations where that is a powerful perspective, right? There are many situations where you want to be that way. But there are many where that doesn't work and where you need to be more organic, more fluid, more natural, more reactive, more spontaneous. And that is where the Brazilian lens is so powerful. And I feel like a lot of my way of doing knowledge management, the way I think of second brains, comes from the interplay of these two perspectives, which are exactly what you said, order and chaos, right? Structure and contents, left brain and right brain. We have all these dualities that we're familiar with that I think also manifest themselves when it comes to organizing. Wow. Well, okay. I have one of these friends, right? And actually, I think he's a mutual friend. His name's Eric. And he is somebody who is absolutely obsessed with bringing absolute order into his notes, into his projects, into the way that he kind of structures his information. But I also seem to witness in him a sort of stuckness about it. And it's like the projects don't actually move forward because it's spending all your time in just trying to organize. And if I think of more common examples, I feel like one of the ways this may be manifest is when I have a ton of emails and I'll spend like an entire day just clearing emails, but I haven't done anything. Would that be examples of what happens if you're only leaning on the order pillar? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's actually a great example because You know, you think about so much of the productivity world is about like routines and habits, right? You get up at 5 a.m. or 4 a.m. or whatever it is these days. You have, you know, these five things you do. And then at this time you do that and you drink this many cups of water and all these things. And there are seasons, there are periods where that is necessary. That's like your environment. That's the basic set of habits that keep you healthy and grounded and sane and productive. But it's interesting because I don't know about you, but there's been these moments in my life, usually when a big opportunity has arisen, 
a potential client conversation, someone you know you could work for, or someone wants to hire you, or someone wants to invite you on their podcast, or there's some big opportunity. When such an opportunity presents itself, you have to just be able to let go of everything. Just let go, like at the drop of a hat, of all the structure and the routine and the rules, right? You don't want to like be in the middle of a you know, a conversation, you're about to land a huge client and you're like, oh no, sorry, it's 4.30 PM. I have to go to the gym because it's on my habit checklist. They'll be like, what the hell? Right? So in a funny way, the ability to let go of your routines and then come back to them quickly is to me just as important as the ability to stick with your routines, you know, perfectly. That's so interesting you say that because yeah, I followed the method where it's like time blocking, right? Like make sure my calendar represents what I actually do. And there seems to be kind of this natural degradation of that habit. And it seems different than what you're speaking about. Like I've had those opportunities where something incredible happens and then it's like, it makes sense for me to kind of consciously cancel the plans, rewrite everything and change my priorities. But what actually bothers me more is this natural decay of some of these habits and order that I have, which seems to just drag me slowly but surely towards a little more chaos. And there's a part of me that's trying to find what is the elixir or the antidote to either slow that down or completely stop it, which I would assume is impossible. But there's ways that I feel like I want to be better at catching myself when there's a slow slip into chaos. So here's the antidote that I would offer, which is to embrace it. That that way you're describing as decay right? The decay of the habit, I would describe a different way, which is the habit initially is a scaffolding. It's like a skeleton that you need this very rigid, very strong structure to learn a new behavior. But as you do it, and as you get familiar with it, it becomes internalized. It sinks into your nervous system. It becomes a part of who you are and how you're thinking to such a degree that you no longer need the original habit at all. <laughs> I know why you talked about mindset change first now, because there's a part of me that's finding that very hard to accept. I'll be honest, Tiago, I'm hearing this and I'm just like, no, that means like I'm a bad person and I'm failing. And I feel like most systems around teaching me to be productive would agree to that. And you're coming in from a really different perspective. So when you share ideas like that, does the community around productivity teachings kind of like scoff at what you share? Or is it something that, you know, underlying what they teach is the ultimate objective? So there's a distinction here, which is beginner and advanced ideas, right? If I'm talking to someone who's a beginner, right? And by beginner, that could be age, you know, they're young. Or it could mean just their familiarity with these concepts and ideas, like they've just you know read their first book on personal development, or beginner in terms of something they're trying to achieve. Let's say they, I don't know, just had a kid, and so they're a beginner at being a parent. So a beginner in any sense, there are certain beginner ideas that are oversimplifications, but they're still necessary for beginners, right? But then when you're no longer a beginner, according to any of those definitions, there are other advanced ideas that are more subtle, they're more sophisticated, they're more complex, and you need that beginner foundation to even appreciate them. But at some point or another, you need, it's actually important for you psychologically to graduate from the beginner concepts to the more advanced ones. And what I just described is definitely an advanced one. <laughs> I wouldn't go talking to a, you know, a college student and be like, habits are not important, forget all structure, free your mind. I would be like, no, you need to learn how to just get up early in the morning, work out every day, do your homework, right? But because it's you and you have the background that you have, we are able to talk about those higher order things. <laughs>
I think that nuance about information geared towards beginners versus advanced is one of the most missed lenses of filtering information that comes at you over the internet. And, you know, we go to YouTube to find these types of advice. And I think that the errors that get affected the most negatively are actually in the fields of spirituality, where when you take an advanced concept, it can add some really bad consequences if you're coming in with a beginner's mind. Luckily, we're not dealing with life and death as much here. And we're talking about productivity. But given that you're on the Selling with Love podcast, I can't help but make the parallel to when I tell people, follow the script, just make like 10 prospecting calls a day. And I'm giving this very prescriptive stuff so that people get into the habit and develop a kind of muscle so that they can become more comfortable with sales. And I'm seeing that there's also a very good parallel here when it comes to productivity. And so I know that Paramethod is coming out and that's going to be the big focus of what you're teaching. And I'm curious to know, do you find that what you've been putting together in this book is going to be geared towards more people that are at the very advanced level? Or do you find that the paramethod is something that's actually digestible for people at a beginner's mindset? Yeah, I love that. You turn the tables on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Let me think. This is totally self-serving, but I feel like para is one of the rare concepts that bridges the two. I mean, I think back, I've been using it in some form since the very, very beginning of my career, since my first you know, professional job in consulting. I sort of discovered it organically. I wasn't trying to come up with a you know, universal system of digital organization. I just did what seemed natural. And I still use it to this very day. It's been over a decade. So I have to conclude that it is, there's something about it that you can start very, and I guess this is why I wrote a whole book on it, because it covers so many situations. It's so mind-bendingly easy to get started. You create a few folders and you put things in them. I've taught it to elementary kids. I've taught it to fifth graders. And they were like, oh, well, this is easy, obvious, duh. <laughs> and I know people running multinational corporations who use it. I don't know of many productivity concepts that can cover that wide of a range. I would agree. And I'd say the power method is something you actually actively teach on your own YouTube channel. And so there's some basic concepts that people can actually grasp right away. And so I'm curious on how you view the way that you share a lot of your methods through your YouTube channels and through some other mediums. Um, how do you feel about kind of divulging your secrets so openly, as opposed to, you know, keeping things that are in the book? Do you find some sort of balance there on how you want to share? Oh, yeah, I don't think about keeping anything secret. To me, that's, that's not, it's not even a useful distinction to think about like, oh, free content plus over here is the secret paywalled content. Uh, we give away everything. There's no, there's no particular idea or piece of advice or whatever that you cannot find for free from, from us, from our company in some form. The only thing that you pay for is just certain formats or certain presentations or certain experiences, right? So the experience of, you know, I happen to have a copy here of holding this physical artifact in your hand. You know, it's colorful. It's well-designed. You can see here there's these nice, colorful, you know, nicely laid out illustrations. You can put it on your shelf. You can sort of pick it up at different moments. That is a quite a distinct experience from going on our blog and reading some text. And I think it's one that is worth paying for and people are willing to pay for. Same thing with our courses. You can go on YouTube and find pretty much everything I have to say for free, but to go into our cohorts and have live coaching with me, with our facilitators, talk to other students, learn in that interactive environment is just very distinct. I just see them as like different ways of consuming or interacting with the same content. 
That's actually interesting, which takes us a bit on a tangent. We'll get back to everyone on the power method. We'll give you an idea of what those acronyms stand for. So you will get your answer. Don't worry. But talking about how you've built your business around your productivity training, right? And this philosophy of like, give everything for free. Again, this is a mindset shift because a lot of people would be afraid to do that. And so once you've actually shared everything for free, one of the call it beginner mindsets that might come up as a fear is like, oh my God, if I share all of this for free and make it open to the internet, are people just going to steal my methods and then it's going to affect me negatively? Have you experienced anybody doing that? And has it been negative towards you or do you think it doesn't matter? What was your mindset about it? Yeah, gosh, I've gone through so many mindsets on this, you know, and I wouldn't say, oh, you know, it's a beginner thing to want to protect your IP, your content, and it's more advanced and more elevated to give it away for free. In fact, the thing that happened that made me shift that attitude, it was very strategic. It was basically before I had the book, the first book, Building a Second Brain Out in the World, I aggressively protected it. In fact, we we had a service that we paid for every month, many hundreds of dollars that would like go out and do issue takedown requests and like get things taken off of search engines and all these things because the business at that time was selling access to this course. But then the day the book came out, I let go of all of that. And I said, open the door, open the floodgates, because then I had a way of capitalizing on the attention that was being generated from all those things being shared widely, which was having a you know an affordable book for $15 that people could buy. So I completely did a 180 on one particular moment in time on that, which was just because of the change in business from one model to the next that we were going through. In hindsight, knowing how opening everything up actually created a lot more opportunities, especially since you became aware of the fact that a book existed, if you could go back in time, do you feel like you would have been even better off if you would have had that mindset before the book? Or do you think that is the perfect time that someone should start being more open source? I think that is the time. That is the time. I think it was important for it to be sort of closed and private and internal so that we could work in private Like often I would change things. I used to say this and now I would say that. That's hard to do in public, right? I think in retrospect, it was the right decision, although not without its consequences. I mean, one of them is last year in 2022, I just am about to publish a blog post talking about this. We had so much cannibalization of the course sales from the book is what I believe is the source that our profitability dropped 87% from 2021 to 2022. Because the only way that we made money was the course. And then we came out with this book that offered all the same material for free. And there was a very clear consequence, which is an almost total drop in profitability, which we're now kind of having to recover from. So it's not free of consequences, you know? Mm. Well, first off, thank you for sharing so openly. And I'm going to at least reciprocate from a third party source, which is one of the big things that attracted me initially to go work for Mind Valley, which is the company I, you know, we first got introduced through doing the podcast when Mind Valley published it. I remember they had a blog which was called Mind Valley Insights. And I was such a fan of that blog because they shared all their marketing practices for free, their split test results and all the case studies that they were testing internally. And that was one of the most avant garde things I had seen on the internet, especially this was like 2012, right when most of direct response online marketing was really tacky, very ugly and they started bringing branding and you know leveling up that field and that is something i remember witnessing and got me attracted to go and work for them so i happen to be kind of those hard to measure bonuses that came from having that open source mentality 
But then I remember also while I was inside the organization that there was somebody that took one of the case studies for one of the products, copied it verbatim, like just changed the logo colors and just same sales pages, same things and started bidding on the same AdWords. And it started just cannibalizing the return on investment. And so that duality of I want to share everything for free, open source versus like, hey, I still need to build a business around this IP, I think is something that we constantly have to go back and forth and even in my own business because I wrote my book I have courses and I also want to be able to share for free and I struggle with that and so I'm glad to see that this seems to be a common struggle yet as we continue to go down this path we seem to be more and more towards open and being able to help people that might not be able to afford a matter of fact having a book is one of the best ways that people can get so much information for so low which brings me back to para so i know para stands for a great acronym and if we wanted people to be able to take action and just understand what are the basics of para could you walk us through that sure yeah so para is an acronym four letter acronym p a r a and it is a very specific solution to a very specific problem which is how do you get organized right? Like that eternal timeless problem. I have a bunch of stuff. In this case, I'm mostly talking about digital information because so much of our lives is now digital. How do I get it together? How do I get it organized, get it in order? I actually think there's a solution to that. And it's a relatively simple one, which is para. We can get into what those letters mean, but there's a key principle. There's an organizing principle at work here, which is to not organize content according to subject. That is the main mistake that people make. They try to create almost like a Dewey Decimal system for their lives, you know, like business ideas and book notes and, I don't know, psychology highlights and different things, like different categories, which just causes an endless proliferation of more and more and more categories until you've forgotten what categories even exist and then you just abandon the whole thing. What Para does is change the basis on which you organize to what is actionable. Another way of thinking about this is in terms of time. There's certain information that you need access to now, which is just a small percentage of it. There's another set of information, which is a bit bigger, which you need access to in the medium term. And then there's another batch of information, which is most of it, which is just for the long term or someday or eventually or sometime in the future. And if you think of, you know, different horizons, short-term horizon, medium-term horizon, long-term horizon, it's actually quite easy to tell on which horizon something belongs. You know, the project for that collaboration you're doing this week that you're gonna need to reference tomorrow or the next day is short-term. Whereas, you know, the notes on the user manual for your dryer at home is probably long-term, right? It's like, maybe someday I'll need to reference that, but there's nothing in the short-term. And that is the main principle on which Para operates. I'm going to ask for some specific examples that relate to sale in a minute. But when it comes to putting together these projects, like, is there a certain number of projects that is a kind of an upper limit that we can manage that we have to be like, okay, if we're having this many projects that are kind of happening in the short term in our lives, like we need to start, you know, focusing or else, you know, we're just going to get paralyzed. Yeah, usually I call this the 10 to 15 rule. I find 10 to 15 projects is a kind of sweet spot. And the interesting thing about that is I find that around half of people have way more than that and they need to dial it back. They need to say no to some things, cancel, defer some things, and sort of narrow their focus, their attention. But the other half of people, just as many people, actually need more projects, which is the opposite 
The beginner advice is, oh, pick one thing, your top priority, and just heads down, do that one thing until it's finished, which is true. That is good advice for a beginner. But once you do that for a while, you start to notice that oftentimes the one thing you're supposed to be doing is blocked, right? It can't move forward. You're waiting on something to happen. You're waiting on someone to get back to you. You're waiting for some piece of feedback or whatever. And if you only have one thing and you have nothing else to turn to, you're now completely, you're completely stopped. You're completely blocked. Whereas if you have a few things going at once, you have a few, you know, pots on the stove, anytime one is blocked, you can turn to the other make progress on that until that gets stopped, move to something else. You always have something that you can move forward on some front. And I find the balance between those two things is usually around 10 to 15. It's interesting you say that because, you know, I'm a big fan of the one thing, you know, the book, I think is Gary Keller, the author. So I read that book, love its premise. And I think, again, is fact, like you're always doing one thing at a time. And from what I understand, I don't think you're advocating here for context switching very rapidly, but you're speaking about the reality of work to be done that we're going to face blockers on a regular basis. And I'll tell you, I'm managing an organization that's actually based in America and I'm out in Southeast Asia. And so a lot of times my blocker is communications with people. And so if I'm starting my day, I have a ton of things to react to. Then I have a ton of projects I need to move forward, but they all hit these blockers. And there's this anxiety that I have to sit with, which is like, I get excited about a project and I want to focus on it. And then I get a point where I can't move on it. And then I'm just like, I feel like I'm losing my productivity by doing this switch to another project. So do you find that that kind of context switch pays an enormous toll as it seems to be portrayed around the, the, the enemy is multitasking? Or maybe are we again having to have a mindset shift? Yeah, I think there's a good distinction here. So context switching is very different when it happens on the level of tasks versus the level of projects. If you're trying to stay focused on getting work done and eating throughout the day is something you think about, have to decide, and you're not sure what to do, and you just wish an option was available where the right meal with all of the specifications you want be available to you, easy to make, under two minutes, well, luckily for you, Factor is available where you have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan, and veggie. And you can enjoy over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons to help you make your weekly meal planning even more delicious. So what are you waiting for? You can get started today and have a feel-good week of meals ready to go. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking up for something fast that's upscale option done very easily. It's flexible on your schedule where you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. No prep necessary. They're 100% ready to heat and eat. So there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup necessary. Head to factormeals.com slash sellingwithlove50 and use code sellingwithlove50 to get 50% off. That's code sellingwithlove50 at factormeals.com slash sellingwithlove50 and you'll get 50% off. Not bad. Task level context switching is usually not a good idea. That's where you're like responding to an email and mid-task you are interrupted or you interrupt yourself and you go and look at your phone and you're typing a message mid-message you turn to something else and you know pay attention to some video. You keep going from mid-task to mid-task. That's bad, right? With few exceptions, that is not a good idea. But projects are very different, right? Because a project you might work on for hours. 
you know, one hour, two hour, three hours, but then you reach that point where you can't go any further, right? Which is almost always the case. Like when is there a project that you can just start and go all the way to the end of the project in one sitting? That's like impossible. That never happens, right? The very nature of a project is that it spans multiple days or weeks or even months, multiple work sessions. So in a way, you have to do context switches anyway, from one day to the next, from the morning to the afternoon, from this week to next week, right? So given that you have to make context switches with projects just because of their duration, my, my mission and my message is how can you make those context switches more efficient? How can you make it so the context switch from one project to another is not jarring and discombobulating, but is actually graceful, is actually like a pivot, almost like in a sport, from doing one move to kind of flowing seamlessly into another move where you're actually using the energy from the previous action and flowing it right into the next action in a way that is, like my Brazilian perspective, fluid, natural, and organic. Hmm. All right. I would love for you to share with me what is a common type of project that would exist in the context of an entrepreneur, just so people can actually understand, okay, what is a unit of project in the para method? Sure. Yeah. Project, I try not to overcomplicate it, is basically an outcome that you're trying to create. The other element is there's a deadline. So that's something you're trying to have happen in the real world. I make that distinction because sometimes people want to identify outcomes that are just in their head. And then it's like, how do you know it really happened? Like, we don't work merely to create psychological shifts in ourselves. We work to have some effect on the world outside of our heads, right? So some outcome that you're trying to create by when? By some time. And usually the shift that people need to make is making projects smaller. So someone will say, I know we've both written books. They'll say, oh, I have a project to write a book. Absolutely not. That is not a project. That is like 20 or 30 different projects. A project would be just find an agent. In fact, when I went to write my book, I didn't say, I'm going to write a book because I would have been instantly terrifying and overwhelming. I just said, let me just see if I can hit the first milestone. Let me just like an experiment. Let me see if I can find an agent, convince them to sign and represent me. Because let's be honest, if I can't hit that first milestone, then nothing else is going to happen. Nothing else is possible. So let's just concentrate on that first project. And you know what? Finding an agent and signing with them took a couple of months. That was like a formidable project just within itself. And once it was finished, then I thought to myself, okay, what is the next milestone? And I just did one little, you know, one month project at a time all the way for three or four years until my book was published. There was really almost no point that I thought, let me sit down and write a book because that is just too many projects wrapped into one thing. Yeah. I'm very grateful for the way that I wrote my book, that this kind of guideline was handed to me. I had a team that actually supported me with the completion of that, and they broke it down into these little tasks because you and me both know drafting a book and editing a book are very different projects. But that being said, what's the opposite of that? Because, you know, should I open up a whole project because I need to, you know, head to the office today and I need to figure out what my route is? Like, this is an extreme example, but, you know, how do you do that kind of litmus test to be like, okay, should I itemize this, make it a project, organize it fully versus should I just go and do it? Yeah, there's a couple rules of thumb here. So first, you're sort of speaking to like the size of a project. What is the right scope and scale? It depends on your skill level, right? 
it depends on your capabilities and your self-confidence. So for example, let's stick on the theme of writing. When I first started my blog like a decade ago, every blog post was like a major project because it was so unfamiliar. It was so daunting that I needed basically the scaffolding. I needed the, the infrastructure of a project with goals and milestones and to-do lists and all these things. Today, more than 500 blog posts later, writing a blog post is like barely even a task. You know, I can just write on my to-do list, write 5,000 word blog posts on so-and-so. And the reason I can get away with that is because I've done it so many times, right? So basically over time, the minimum size level of a project for me when it comes to writing specifically has increased. Now let's take an opposite example, home projects. I am not a good homemaker. <laughs> I am not a good suburban dad that's, you know, going around in my little shorts and white, you know, sneakers, mowing the lawn, doing different things. It's very hard basically for me to pull myself away from work and work on the house. So the tiniest thing, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I've had it change a light bulb, like as a project. In that case, it's because it was like a special light bulb and I had to like go to the hardware store, find the exact model number, bring it home, like go up into the attic because it was one of those where you have to like install it from the top. So there were some steps, but because of my lower level of sort of capability and dedication to home projects, I had to actually make changing a light bulb a project. Hmm. I can even apply this in different contexts. I'm thinking like, oh, if you have a date night, you know, if you want to make that a, a habit or you want to level up, you know, in your romantic life, that can actually be a project as well. So you can pick the restaurant, you can organize this stuff. And I can also see the parallel around, for example, me doing this podcast. Like there's so much around me interviewing guests and, and scheduling them out. I don't necessarily projectize this, but I have kind of a pipeline that I manage around this recurring task that's about interviewing guests. And that actually comes very closely to what it looks like when it comes to managing like a deal pipeline for a salesperson. And so where does that fit within the para method? Or is this something that doesn't even, you know, find it in the projects category here? This is a fantastic example. So think about there's often this thing that happens where you're trying something you haven't done before. It starts off as a project. Like dating, actually, let's do dating and then let's go to sales. So dating. On the first date, that is, as far as you know, a one-time event. Okay, it is not good. <laughs> it is not healthy for you to start planning your future together and how many kids you're going to have and naming your kids and where you're going to get married, right? That will not lead to a good first date. You really, psychologically, you want to think, okay, it's just one date. That is my full commitment, right? But then over time, that project becomes what I call an area of responsibility, right? If it's successful, it becomes a relationship and then maybe eventually you get married and then it becomes a family. There is a process of a small commitment turning over time into a longer term commitment. Same thing in sales, right? If you have yet to close one deal, do not waste your time going and signing up for some complicated multi-stage pipeline management workflow. Don't go and get fancy embossed golden business cards. Don't go and buy a $20,000 suit. All of that is premature, right? Just close a freaking deal. Let me just inject that if anybody has felt themselves do that, get the right technology, the CRM, please know that you're not alone. I've went down this path so many times before closing a first deal that it is a natural habit and there's nothing wrong with you. You just haven't heard from Tiago yet. <laughs> I mean, we all do it. We all do it. Like this is the person going and buying a bunch of rock climbing gear before they even have figured out if they like rock climbing. 
It's the person, you know, downloading a new fancy design software because they have this idea they might want to be a designer. It's a way I think of avoiding the actual thing that we need to decide or experience or feel by doing all this preparatory background work, which is essentially a form of procrastination. But Para encourages you to start with a project. Oh, it's a one-time thing. I'm just trying it. Then, and only then, if it works, if you like it, if it's successful, if it's something you want to continue for the longer term, you can just get, in this case, the folder, right? The actual folder and just move it from the projects category directly to the areas category. I actually did this like with my wife. We were dating. I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but she was a project. <laughs> Change your labels if your partner is going to look at your organizing system and she's a part of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have to explain to them. It's not that I am trying to fix you. It's just that this is the correct terminology. And then I, at one point, you know, just moved her over to areas. It's kind of funny. Even like my kids, you know, when we first got pregnant, I couldn't even fathom what it meant to be a father. And so all I could bring myself to do was create a project that was just childbirth. It was just get through the one-time event of childbirth, which had a lot. You know, we did a home birth, so we needed like a tub. We needed like this hose. We needed to like know the protocol, all these things, who to call. But then once they were born, I could be like, okay, well, now this is an ongoing responsibility, clearly. <laughs> so let me just move, you know, that folder, that information to the areas. And now I have an area, which is the name of my son. I was going to ask you, like, how many kids do you need to be planning for to have a project of giving birth to become an area of giving birth? And I was like, <laughs> it reminds me of one of those like energy drink commercials that was like, you'll have 500 babies if they're an area, part of the para method, which, you know, just to circle back around that, which is P, you know, because it is an acronym, P was the project. And if I understand this correctly, one off at the beginning, don't overcomplicate things. There's a deadline and there's an outcome and then you complete that project. And once you see this becomes something that will be happening in a recurring format or something that you need to kind of build a more sophisticated process around for repeatability and predictability of outcome, it moves to the second letter, which is an A area. And I'm wondering, does A and area kind of also parallel where it's about, oh, I've built a habit? Somewhat, yeah. Yes, in terms of the fact that it's repeatable, it's something that will happen, you know, again and again. It's something that you're responsible for, something that you need certain reminders or certain triggers. So yeah, you could think of areas of responsibility as habits. Mm, got it. And so if I'm a salesperson, if we're going back to that sales example, which I think you've already introduced really well, is if you're getting started, don't think about building the best, most optimized sales pipeline with, you know, all of your flows automated and all that. This is procrastination. Instead is you got to just pick up the phone and try to close a deal. If there's one client, just focus on that client and really serve them, show up them, be human to human. You're working on a single project. But once you have a regular deal flow, then it becomes something that you might want to templatize into a pipeline. And maybe there's a project that you need to do, which is how to make sure that my sales process is now a sales system. And that becomes part of an area. And now, for example, I'm using a platform called Notion, which I know you're familiar with as well. And I have this like database with cards. And, you know, if I'm doing sales or in this case, it would be more like when I'm scheduling guests to come on my podcast, there's a little file for every one of my guests. I move them through this kind of board of like, okay, I've booked them. Okay, we've recorded. We're in production. Okay, it's ready to release. And this is what I would put in an area. 
And there's a ton of habits in my organization, whether it's my sales process, I do use HubSpot CRM. There's a sales pipeline because, you know, I have this repeatable sales cycle and I'm trying to kind of figure out in my business, what are all the areas that need to be running and functioning so my business actually grows and is successful, including if I'm a salesperson, what are the activities that I regularly do from prospecting, following up and closing that drives revenue? This is an area and now I actually understand that if I'd want to improve my process, this could be a new project, but the actual running of the process is an area. I think I got it. We should transcribe that whole explanation. That was a <laughs> perfect application of para to sales. Well, this is what we're trying to unpack here, but I know we've only covered half of the kind of acronym here. So, okay, so now I understand how this part works for sales. I know the R in power stands for resources. So how does that look like? Yeah, you can think of resources as just everything else, almost like a miscellaneous. The word resource is such a broad word. I mean, anything can be a resource, right? And it's just a way of saying that there are certain kinds of information, certain resources that might be useful in any number of projects and any number of areas. So you don't want to stick them in a specific project or a specific area because then they'll just be siloed to that one thing. You want to keep them in this third category, generally useful resources, and then link, have links from possibly multiple projects and multiple areas to those resources. That kind of many-to-many -many relationship is very powerful because when it comes to information, information it has this quality, it's not single use. If you know what to say at that moment when the prospect is wavering to really get them to commit, that little nugget of knowledge is not use it once and that's it. You can use that again and you must use it again and again and again and again. That is a multi-use, repeatable use asset, that piece of knowledge. And therefore, you should incorporate it into you know many different, in this case, client conversations. Mm. If I understand this correctly, maybe in a context of sales, resources could be links to, you know, powerful closing technique videos, some articles, maybe a podcast that you've saved from Selling with Love that you took a moment and left a very five-star review and gave us your honest opinion or watched on YouTube and, of course, subscribed and liked just to make that plug happen because, you know, that's how it works. But nonetheless, you would save information that you reference to. You might use at a future time, but you kind of have it all in this kind of library that you build for yourself. Is that how I understand? I often use that term. It's like your personal reference library. Some people prefer the term reference to resource is you can think of it. Yeah, this is everything in your day to day as you are reading books and saving. Hopefully you save the highlights that you take when you read an article online from a blog post or whatever. And you save a, you know, a data point when you're listening to a podcast and you save a quote. It's like the general background learning, the general content consumption that you're doing. Where does that go? I mean, sometimes it can go directly into a project if you're lucky, but usually it's just kind of, it's like the books on the shelf. You want it close at hand, easily accessible, easily searchable as this sort of general reference library of advice and insights. And if I'm not mistaken, this touches a bit more from your first book, the second brain part, which is like for everything that you consume, you have these habits that you encourage people to capture these and store them somewhere so they can be recalled when they're necessary. And to be honest, this is not a habit that I currently have. And I feel like I'm missing out on a lot of the information that I read because of it. And so is there something you encourage? Is it a question of having the right tool, technology, habit. If I'm someone that is an avid learner and I wish I could build this library of resources more effectively, what are some of the steps I could take to being like, oh, right, now I know the next time I'm listening to an audiobook, like I can at least make sure it doesn't fall into a void. 
Yeah, if we're talking about that sort of background, you know, content consumption, I think the easiest way to start is to really zero in on what kind of content are you already consuming? So what would you say is like your number one source of content consumption? YouTube. Okay. So in that case, I would just, it's sort of like this basic question, given that I am already spending my valuable and precious time on this platform, that's a given. You already have half the equation. You're just trying to get the other half of the equation, which is how do I save things from there? And there's different things you can do. Like I use a, it's called a read later app, but it actually has a great YouTube feature called Reader. I know there's different apps called Reader, but this is the one made by Readwise. Have you ever heard of it? No, I haven't actually. I'll send you a link. It's just called Reader. You can do a search for it online, but basically you can save a link to a YouTube video. So if I'm on my computer or my phone and I'm looking at a YouTube video, but I don't have time to watch it right then, I just do share, send it to Reader. And when I have time, I come back to it. Reader will play the YouTube video at the top of the screen. And then right below it, there's a full transcript of every word that's being said. And as the video plays, it will highlight what's being said. So what I can do is I just hit pause and then right there, I put my, just like highlighting, like on a Kindle ebook, I put down my finger, highlight the exact phrase that I want to save. And that phrase is automatically exported with no further effort on my part to my notes app, which is Evernote. All right. And this is where I'm going to encourage everybody to actually go and follow Tiago's YouTube channel, get a copy of his book, because we've touched the surface around a lot of the mindsets that we need to have when we start applying the para method, as well as understanding the concepts around building a second brain, which I know is the original book. And there's so much more to unpack because once you've actually embraced this kind of mindset, now you start layering in the tools. And there are a lot of tools out there. I'd be curious to know, have you made any significant changes to any types of technology or tools that you've been using, say, from 10 years ago, or maybe even, you know, five or a little less long than 10 years that you find more recently you've been excited about starting to use to become more organized and productive? Yeah, you know, I'm sort of known in the productivity world as this like, sort of Luddite curmudgeon that doesn't like new technology. <laughs> and that's mostly just to provide some counterweight to most of the conversation, which is just like the new app, the new trick, the new hack, the new thing. I get very frustrated with this, what I call neomania, which is the obsession with new things just because they're new. I feel kind of proud that I've been using the same kind of three basic productivity tools for 10 years. That's Evernote for notes, things for to-dos, and BusyCal for my calendar. I mean, the greatest productivity tack I've ever found is simply picking those three tools and using them for a decade without constantly evaluating and wondering and feeling FOMO about what I could be using. The one that I have switched recently is the one that I mentioned, Reader. So I was using Instapaper for many, many years. But then they kind of stagnated. They didn't come out with any new features. And Reader, I think I switched to in the last year or so, made huge strides, really innovated on the practice of reading online or reading on a tablet. So that is the latest thing that I've changed. And it was only because the previous thing I was using was really, really bad. So it was like my last resort. But the last thing I'll do if I have no other choice is move to a new platform. <laughs> That's a sobering thought because you're right. This neo-obsession almost makes it hard for you to commit to any platform. And I'll say the same thing happens when it comes to sales and to online marketing. There's always a new, and I'm guilty of it, man. Like I love the shiny new platforms and I see how it has no organizational debt. They're launching a bunch of features and kind of, you know, 
sticking to what works and not always switching, I think ends up building a lot of the habits and, you know, letting you have this structure of organizing your information in a way that's never getting disrupted because you decided to jump ship and jump on another platform, which I think is an interesting segue to make sure we wrap this episode with the last letter from the para method, which is the archive, which I think is a very powerful thing that you need to include in your organizational system to make sure nothing is lost. Was there anything else you could share about the last acronym letter of your para method? Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's basically, you never want to delete anything, right? We now live in this era that you have effectively infinite storage space. So if something could theoretically in the future be valuable, why delete it? And also it's like painful, the decision to delete something, you're like, oh, it's like very, you know, it's very hard. And so just never delete anything. But you also absolutely cannot keep it front and center all the time. Okay, if you try to keep everything in the center of your vision and the center of your like front and center all the time, that is truly what leads to overwhelm and burnout, right? And so what the archives are is an in-between. It's a place, think of it like cold storage. I think of it as like a big walk-in freezer or like a basement. It's a place that I can stick things that are projects that are finished, areas of responsibility that are no longer active, resources that are no longer relevant, anything that is no longer relevant or active. I can stick there where it's accessible in the future, basically forever. It's easily searchable, but in the meantime, it's not taking up any space, any time, or any attention. That is the purpose of the archives. I love it. And to me, I mean, I know there's pros and cons around using this kind of method, but for me, when it comes to emails, discovering that the button archive exists instead of delete is something that most people underestimate how much liberty and freedom it grants you when you have an inbox that doesn't have a thousand or 10,000 emails in it just psychologically, it's liberating, right? And so I find that's definitely one that might be underestimated on its psychological impact of just knowing that it's still there, but at least it's not bothering your visual frame when you're trying to prioritize things. Tiago, there's one more thing I wanted to ask, or two, to be honest. One of them is the para method and the way that you apply this. We've been speaking a lot from an individual's perspective. I wanted to know when you are applying this within an organization, are there some significant or noteworthy differences that we should take into consideration if you're trying to roll this out in a small team, whether that's a sales team or an organization that's in the startup phase? Yes, there are. And actually, I dedicated a whole chapter in the book to what it looks like to roll out para with a team or organization. I think I have five recommendations there that I'm not going to be able to remember off the top of my head. But I think the gist of it is that there's a way of helping your team organize that is not top down. What I've seen really not work is when the boss or the manager or the executive comes in and says, okay, everyone, what you're doing is wrong. Let me just impose on you, whether it's a new platform we're going to use or an organizing methodology or even just a mandate. Like I love when an organization rolls out a knowledge sharing platform. They're like, okay, everyone now spend 45 minutes every single day just typing your knowledge into our wiki. And everyone is like, we're not going to do that. That never works, right? There's something about knowledge that is inherently grassroots. It needs to be bottom up. What I encourage organizations to do is to train people, really see the implementation of Para not as a technical challenge. It's really not technical. There's no technical capability you need. It is a human and a training challenge. You really have to teach people. I mean, the fact that we've been sitting here for an hour or 45 minutes talking about this tells you there are some mindset shifts. You have to unlearn and let go of certain mindsets that probably you've had since childhood that you were taught and take on new ones. 
And if you don't give people that training, that education, no system that you try to mandate is ever going to work. I like that. And to be honest, I was asking you before we started the interview, where can I find the book? Because I couldn't see it on Amazon. I think it's a common mistake I do with your name is I add an H. And so removing the H and doing the proper search for Tiago Forte, I was able to find it. I'm going to get myself a copy because I absolutely love your material. I think it's so liberating to go through things like the Para Method. We've covered so much in the episode today from just understanding the mindset shift that happens around thinking that being organized is all about order. There's a spark of chaos or creativity that needs to exist as well. And there are maturity cycles that need to happen for anything that you take on as a project. The power method, I think, is a super powerful, very simple way of getting started saying starts as a project, evolves into an area, you recall towards resources and you archive what's not active. And there's going to be so much more you can dig into when you get a copy of this book. If you're finding that your life has too much chaos or too much order, but just not enough flow, not enough fun for the way that you're operating for your business in your sales or in your personal life as well. And when it comes to applying it within teams and business well you'll just have to read more to go deeper into that subject which brings me to one thing i want to ask you tiago and i know we didn't touch on sales as much but you run your own business you you sell as kind of a content creator a knowledge economy type of person so you do have to sell and so i do want to ask you the question i ask every guest that comes on the show is what does selling with love mean to tiago forte oh gosh i think to me it's just that selling is taking a stand for people. But especially when it comes to information, knowledge, advice, anything of that nature, you are standing up for them. You're taking a stand for them, insisting that they be given every opportunity to benefit from that knowledge. You can't, you can't make them say yes. You can't force them to accept it. But you can definitely leave no stone unturned you know, and refuse to give into any fear or consideration or excuse all of which pretty much are just in your own head. And I really see selling as making the potential of that knowledge available to them in every way that you can think of. Amen. That's good. I love it. Tiago, it was such a pleasure to have a conversation with you again. You shared so much with my listeners, so I'm very, very grateful. And for everybody tuning in, grab a copy of this book. You definitely won't regret it. It will be in your resources for the rest of your life. And with that, of course, go out there and keep selling with love. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.